Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're looking at delusions in Call of Cthulhu. But before we get into all that interesting stuff, what is going on? As uh, a great man once said, by the pricking of my thumb, something interesting this way comes on the first weekend of March, I understand, yes? A weekend with good friends, the next convention organised by our lovely listeners, is coming up very soon. The convention itself will start, as Matt just mentioned, on the 1st of March, running through to the 3rd of March. But an important date before then, a couple of days after this episode goes out, will be player sign-ups. GM sign-ups have already closed at this stage, but if you want to sign up for any of the games that have been offered, you can do so between the 15th and the 22nd of February. And don't worry if you miss that date or if you wanted to offer a game but missed the deadline for GM signups, because there will be pickup games running throughout the convention and also there will be panels running throughout the convention as well. So you can come along and just enjoy those even if you don't want a game. And now on to our main topic. Delusions in Call of Cthulhu. Following our discussion of psychological horror, we thought we'd see how we might put some of that to use in our games. While we've discussed the role of insanity in Call of Cthulhu way back in episode 136, Christ, I feel old. This time we're drilling down specifically into what happens when the investigators can no longer trust their senses. Let's start off then with just going through what delusions mean mechanically in Call of Cthulhu. You seem like the best person to explain this, Paul. How does it all work? It's a side effect of sanity loss. So when a investigator suffers sanity loss, if they suffer sufficient loss of sanity points, then they can suffer what's termed temporary or indefinite insanity. Either one of these conditions triggers an initial sort of frenzied bout of madness or, you know, some sort of event that the player has sort of limited control of. I mean, it's a discussion between the player and the keeper as to sort of how that plays out. Once that's over, there's this situation of them suffering this loss of sanity. And that's reflected in them remaining vulnerable to what we term delusions. Now, delusions can be anything that the keeper wishes to put in. Strictly, they're hallucinations, I would, would say. So, yeah, there's a differentiation between hallucinations, which is what you perceive, and that's what the keeper is feeding you, and delusions, which are in your head. So an example would be an investigator is driving along, or, you know, somebody in the real world is driving along, and you keep seeing the same car following you. And, you know, when you're in the supermarket, you see people taking notes on you and, and stuff like that. Those are hallucinations. The delusion is what you, how you interpret it. The delusion is, oh my God, the government is mm. keeping track of me. But for all intents and purposes in Call of Cthulhu, delusion is, is both of those things combined. 
That's interesting you putting it that way because it occurs to me that when I'm running Call of Cthulhu, I will quite often feed into that second aspect of delusions, as well as describing the sensory aspects of the hallucinations, that I will sometimes prime the players or at least drop hints about mm. how they might interpret them, sort of feeding that paranoia or that delusory state asking direct questions about oh you know, what what do you think this means or you know are they really conspiring against you that kind of thing just to get all that going yeah good i think that's good to phrase them as questions so you know what do you mm. think's happening is that guy in the suit do you think he's from the government mm. did they have gills on their neck things like that sort of put it into the player's head and then the player can react to that how they want you're not forcing it on the player but what the investigator perceives is always limited really to what the the keeper says you know so if the keeper says oh there's a guy with gills on his neck staring at you well as a player i can guess oh maybe this is just a delusion or maybe it isn't maybe it is a deep one keeping track of me but yeah just going back to the mechanics how do they work that's how they work so for as long as you're suffering that state your investigator is prone to delusions so there are those two types of insanity you mentioned, temporary insanity and indefinite insanity. And indefinite insanity seems to be the big one for delusions, right? So indefinite insanity is, as the name implies, until the character has an event such as medical treatment, psychiatric treatment, or perhaps uh, an investigated development phase representing a sufficient passage of time for them mm. to come out of that delusory state, that unreal yeah. state. And that happens when they've lost a fifth of their total sanity over the course of one day, or at least before they go to sleep. But you made reference to delusions potentially occurring in conjunction with temporary insanity as well. So this may be something that I've been getting wrong in Call of Cthulhu all this time. How does that work? Well, temporary or indefinite is just the duration. Yeah. The effects are the same. It's just the duration. Well, they're both temporary, but temporary is a short-term thing, normally up to like, well... We say by default kind of 1D 10 hours, but you, know, you can play it by ear, really. I, I would encourage keepers just to play it by ear. And, you know, it might be that you get to the next scene and a few hours have gone by and the keeper says, you're over that now. Indefinite, as you described, Scott, is, is for a longer period of a longer duration. But essentially the mechanics, unless I'm misremembering, the mechanics are, are essentially the same in terms of effects on the investigator. That's interesting because... I've probably been running it wrong all this time because the way that I handle temporary insanity is I deal with the bat of madness, which, if it's the real-time one, is the D10 rounds. And then I don't necessarily consider the D10 hours of effect after that. So are you saying that even after you're out of that initial bout of madness, there is a D10 hours after that temporary insanity in which the character is susceptible to delusions and so on? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. I have been running it wrong all this time. I've just dealt with that initial D10 rounds and then moved on. That's what the rule book says. That's what the rules say. I think going back to 
over 10 years ago when we, well, yeah, gosh, well, over 10 years ago when <laughs> we put the Keeper Rulebook together, previous editions of Call of Cthulhu had been really, obviously it was kind of the same game, but the, the, the guidelines on how to handle sanity and the loss of sanity were a lot, well, I don't want to say, yeah, but they were a lot vaguer. Less defined. Less defined. So we defined it more closely because I think previously it was just, oh, your character suffering insanity. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm, as keeper or player, we're, we're just going to decide. Whereas now you've got things to mechanically use in that game and you've got durations and so on. But even then, it's it's something that feels like it should be tied somewhat to the scenario, to the situation and so on. Mm. So I think there has to be quite a lot of flexibility, both for the keeper and the player to sort of discuss and sort of agree what, what those outcomes are. And you mentioned a few moments ago about what options are available to the players when they think their character is encountering a delusion. I mean, you can play it a few ways. You can play it as a player. Maybe I'm, I'm playing in Matt's game and uh, Matt's the keeper and he says something that as a player, I kind of pretty clear to me that, or, or I'm pretty strongly suspect it's the delusion that he's feeding me. And as a player, I can play along with that and make my investigator totally accept it because that's what they're perceiving, or I can make them fight against it. And if I want to to sort of check that, then I can call for what's called a reality check role, which is my investigator is uh, tries to have a moment of realisation and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I roll to disbelieve. Exactly. It's a sanity role. If you succeed, you have a moment of clarity and you see what's real. You, you see through the the hallucinations, the delusions, you perceive what's actually going on. You you get, you know, as I said, like a moment of clarity and you're no longer subject to delusions until you lose further sanity points. If you fail that reality check role, that sanity role for, for a reality check, then you lose a single point of sanity, which then can then lead to another bout of madness and, and the delusions remain. So you, you've maybe just... Rather than digging your way out, you've dug the hole deeper. So when a character there makes a reality check, do you normally handle it in terms of them kicking back against a specific thing that's made them think, oh, hang on, this isn't right? Or is it just them trying to counteract that general feeling of unreality? And the reason I ask is, you could end up with situations where a character is perhaps experiencing some delusory state, but then they encounter something that's really there, but just weird, and try to disbelieve that. Let's say they've been mm. seeing strange things in the shadows and so on, and then at some point they encounter a hideous monster and think, oh, hang on, that can't be real. And that's the point at which they decide, hang on, I, I want to make that reality check. How would you handle that? Yeah, that's a good point. Let's see. They're going to ask for the reality check role, which is quite unusual, I have to say. I think we should touch on that. I don't think I've ever had a player ask for one, actually. I think I have, but it is unusual. I think maybe because we don't tend to offer them. Mm. As keepers, we know they're there, perhaps, but we don't often 
proffer them to the players. We don't often suggest them. I guess maybe if the player sort of said, is this real? I'm not sure I believe this. I think I think this is just a, I'd maybe suggest. Have you had this situation, Matt, where you've had players ask for reality check roles? It's not something I tend to get, because mainly because I don't play with delusions. But also I do remember I was said player that asked for a reality check when you were playtesting the rules when we played through Walker in the Waste. Right. So no, I've asked for reality checks, but as a, as a keeper, I don't play with delusions. This doesn't come up for me. <laughs> so can you remember what that instance was in, in the game we were playing? Yeah, if I remember right, it was quite late in the campaign with a particular item that we needed to have lots of blood that uh, was uh, used to activate it. So I'd gone out to acquire blood, uh, which as far as I was concerned, I was going to like a butcher's, I was going to get some jerry cans filled up with this stuff and then bring it back. And then I think it was a case of you asked me, right, can you go out of the room for a sec while I just have a word with the other players? Of course, I come back in and then see their completely disgusted and horrified faces reacting to me as you described my reaction. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute, I'm just walking in with these cans that have got no no sign of what's in them. What, what the hell's going on here? And it was that that kind of prompted, well, something must be up here. They're obviously seeing something that I'm not seeing. So I asked for the reality check, and then you promptly just described how I was absolutely drenched in blood carrying these two buckets that were sloshing around uh, red stuff all over the floor. That's, that's what I remember, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were they in a museum or something? They were in some sort of like... I think we were under the British Museum at the time or somewhere of that ilk, yeah. And you just turned up with these buckets of blood. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. That was very memorable. But then <laughs> the character you play, Matt, Without any effects of sanity loss, you might have just turned up with buckets of blood anyway. That wouldn't surprise me greatly. Yeah, who needs delusions? I'll just do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So now you said something very interesting there to me, Matt. You said you don't use delusions in the game. Is that right? Yeah, no, uh, partly because it's a time management thing. A lot of the time I'm playing the games or running games at conventions or in a very short time span. Mm. And the problem I've got with them is twofold that one, they are a massive distraction. They take away from the central part of the plot. So I'm saying, I'm going to have to dedicate like quarter of an hour, half an hour to just resolving this one effect of a failed sand roll, which frankly, Mm. I haven't got the time for when I'm running a game in an already tight time scale. And the second one being that it can really affect the kind of dynamic of the player group. If you've got one player that's suddenly suffering from these delusions and the rest of the players either don't believe them or worst come to the point where they don't trust them they don't want to get them involved in anything that's going along and it can really split the group and it leaves Mm. that one player affected almost ostracized as a result of that one failed role and i would hate that if i was the person on the receiving end so i just don't want that to come up in a game that i run in the example you just relayed you were the person on the receiving end of that yeah until i saw through it Did that have a negative impact on the game for you or was that okay? Because, I mean, I've never really, I don't think we asked that at the time. If I remember right, that same campaign ended with everyone turning their guns on me and saying, you're not leaving the ice alive. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, my my question still stands. (laughs) No, no, in in that particular instance, I could see how it could have gone very badly. But thankfully, it didn't go badly for me. But it's also, I would want to avoid that situation entirely for another player to be even potentially put in that situation. Yeah, and I think it's worth stating, like, we're talking 
I think probably before even the creation of the X card. So there were no safety tools. We did talk to each other, but there weren't like mm. formal safety tools. And nowadays, I think, you know, we'd have, if we were using something as simple as the X card, then there are ways to avoid situations where people would have things imposed on them that they're not comfortable with. It also occurs to me that we must play with very different kinds of players because the people I play with regularly, they absolutely embrace stuff like this. I, I know a fair number of them who will just count down the sand points until they hit that one-fifth because they enjoy role-playing characters who are in that state. They enjoy the weirdness that can bring to the game. And as far as the dynamics, the conflicts that, that can bring up, that just adds to the overall game. I, maybe it's a fundamental philosophy thing. When I'm running a game, I, as I've said before, I don't tend to think of it in terms of a story or a plot. I'm playing to see what happens. I'm playing to see the interactions between the characters. And these delusions, these conflicts, these moments of uncertainty and so on enhance all that. They make it a more interesting game. It's not like they're a distraction from the plot. They are the plot. I'll sit firmly at the other end of the bell curve and completely disagree with you there. They get in the way of everything I want to try and do at the table. Some of those examples you were giving, Matt, you were sort of saying because you're, in part at least, because you're time limited. So do you feel the same whether you're running a, you know, an open-ended campaign or... I can very much see that that is a consideration if you're running a one-shot and you've got limited time, you've just got a few hours and because it can cause more content in the game, more content in the story, because you've got people going off and doing their own thing. You've got division among the players, which, as Scott says, can be a fun aspect, but it can also elongate, potentially. It might bring it to a very <laughs> quick close, but it can also open up a lot more avenues of play, which on the one hand is fun. But on the other hand, if you're trying to be disciplined and fit it into a maybe a three-hour slot, then maybe that's problematic. So how about with longer form games, Matt? Yeah, still almost the same thing. It's just the time constraint issue isn't there particularly as mm. much, although there'll still be the constraint of, oh, I'd like to get this done in a session or I'm kind of working out how long the thing's going to last in general rather than just keeping dragging on and on. So I don't want to have a... like I'm running a two-edged serpent at the minute for my mm. third or fourth time through. I can't remember. One of the things I found there is I still don't really embrace delusions as much even though we've had characters that have lost a whole load more san but i think it doesn't really fit into the pulp model as well what really it's a good excuse for them to get pulp talents or um, the insane talents but again it just feels like a distraction it's, oh in the middle of this high action scene and now we've got to resolve you having this completely different worldview of what's going on completely de of detriment to whatever's actually going on and it's already a lot to juggle and it's just something i don't want on my plate hmm Oh, that's interesting because I, I guess I kind of sit in the middle. I use them sometimes, but often, like, particularly then if I'm running a convention game, I might use them, I might not. It just depends on how things go. I guess it depends how many balls you've got to juggle in the air, really. I feel sometimes they're a fun thing to throw in. But they are, I guess, it, coming back to the, the rules, they are something that the keeper can choose to add into the game. As a keeper, you can choose to play it as Matt's described and not use them. 
that's one extreme or you can throw yourself into them as scott's described and use them a lot yeah because i think a lot of what makes lovecraftian horror and cosmic horror work is that sense of unreality that sense of weirdness that can i trust what i'm seeing this is beyond human comprehension what is this going to do to my perception of reality is reality even what i think it is anymore and i think just not using that in the game misses a big part of what makes Call of Cthulhu different from other horror games, or at least Lovecraftian horror different from other types of horror. I think you can still have players and all their characters ask themselves those questions. I just mm. don't think they should be then have the burden of the GM having to invest all the amount of time and effort to be able to tailor their perception for just that single player with the aforementioned concerns have already arisen coming from that, that you could potentially could really split the player base with them on one side of that split and everyone else on the other. I don't think it's necessarily a massive rabbit hole to sort of go down. Mm. I think it can yeah. just be a, an incidental thing that illustrates what the person is, is going through that they can't maybe trust what they're seeing. I've got one or two examples that I've, I've kind of recalled and some of those can open up whole vistas of, investigation and, and so on in the game i think others perhaps less so they're, they're just sort of incidental little things that you might throw in that the player might not even really react to and people might not even really realize it's the delusion there is a scale but as you know i think you're right matt it can open up a, a rabbit hole of if that's the right right phrase but I feel like Matt may be representing there a very extreme form of delusion. Delusions don't have to be reality as you know it is entirely wrong. They can be just little things that you throw in for atmosphere and seasoning. It can just be, hmm. was that a shadow you saw in the doorway or someone standing there watching you? It can be you overhear a conversation at the bus stop. Are they really talking about human sacrifice or is that just because it's what's on your mind at the moment? Those are still delusions. I was talking to somebody a while back and I was a little surprised when they said this, that they felt like the use of delusions could be a way of punishing players, hmm. which is not something that I do. And I know anecdotally something that, you know, historically and probably contemporary as well does occur in role-playing games, you know, hmm. the DM or the keeper, you know, they've, they've got it in for their players and I'm really going to show them tonight. And, you know, if they do this thing, then they've got to be punished. So they learn. I mean, it's just, that's, that's yeah. just, I don't know, wrong behavior. Yeah. Pathological. Yeah. But I mean, it is definitely, as I say, I want to say historically, but it is, it is an aspect of, of the way some people play games, which is just strange to me. I think it's something you tend to see more in inexperienced GMs. I think by the time you've been GMing for a while, you, I'd like to think, learn that that stuff just isn't a good idea. But the people I'm talking about were younger players, so I don't think they were kind of playing with old hands. But I think their, their interpretation was that this could be used to punish players. So I just want to put it out there that there's a few things that I want to sort of stress. It's not there to punish players. And also it's not there to make fun of mental illness in, in any way or form. Mm. Sanity mechanics in Call of Cthulhu 
people should treat mental illness with the respect it deserves. And whilst the sanity mechanics touch on that, we removed the diagnostic terms that were in some previous editions. Because it occurred to me, you know, there's things like depression and so on. We don't have that in Call of Cthulhu. Mm. You'll find it mentioned in, in older editions, perhaps, but it's not in the most recent edition. And that's twofold reasons for that is, one, because it's something that real world people suffer with, they have to deal with, and uh, it's not pleasant. And we don't want that in the game. But also, just from a purely game point of view, having an investigator suffering depression, I don't really see any good gaming aspects that would come out of that. I can see how it can be explored mm -hmm. in fiction, in novels and, and TV and, and films and so on. They can explore all manner of things. But in a game, I think if you and your group have a, a serious discussion and you want to touch on those kind of themes, well, great, fine. But by default, the game doesn't touch on that. But delusions, I think, are something very different. But at the same time, I can see why people might want to avoid them in games because they've perhaps had experience either firsthand or from people that they know in their lives of psychotic illness. Yeah. And perhaps it does stir up those feelings of not being able to trust your own senses or having to help someone who has lost touch with reality to some degree i've been in that position myself and it's it's a scary thing to have to deal with but it's always going to be down to the players i mean sometimes yeah exploring these things in the game or dealing with them can be fun sometimes it can be cathartic and sometimes it can be triggering it's down to the players to let you know what it is to them and for you as the GM to act appropriately. If someone says they don't want delusions in their game because they spent their life dealing with a relative who had a psychotic illness, then that's entirely fine. Absolutely. And we've just discussed, you know, how you can play the game and, as Matt illustrated, not use them. Your game's not going to suffer for that. You know, that's an interesting point you make, Scott, that you've suffered that yourself. But you seem to embrace it in the game. Now, I'm not saying mm -hmm. that you should or you shouldn't, but I've talked to other people as well who have suffered with mental health problems or mental illness. And for them, for some of those people, in part, that's partly the appeal of the game. Yeah. That's, that's a very personal thing for them. But it tends to be like they like exploring that with a group that they know and trust and that they've, you know, had those discussions with. Also, fundamentally, from my point of view, and, and I'm not saying I speak for anyone else who's had mental health issues over the years, but from my point of view, it's a fun release. It's make-believe. Mm. And it's a very different thing from the reality of mental illness. And yeah. I can enjoy it for what it is without having to worry about whether it's realistic or whether it reflects my own personal experiences. In the same way as I can enjoy films that deal with aspects of uh, psychological horror and mental illness without thinking, you know, that, that, yeah. they're, that they're wrong. I can enjoy a knife fight in a game. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that in real life. You know, whether it's physical or mental peril and the effects of that, 
real life and, and fiction are two very different things. Mm. So I think that's part of the, the reason of having them in there, that if you want to use them, they give you something concrete that you can do when people are suffering the effects of, of sanity loss. It gives you something, the keeper, something to do. Otherwise, that indefinite period of insanity, well, well what, what is that? What do we do with that? The player can take it upon themselves to reflect that in the way they role play as they see fit. Otherwise, it, it, if they don't do that, it, it feels a bit like, well, it's not really having any game effect mm. to me. And also, I think it can serve other purposes in the game. You can use delusions and these hallucinations and so on as ways of echoing other things that are happening in the game. Maybe they're things from the character's backstory or maybe they're, they're stuff that the characters are encountering in the game. I think you threw in the example earlier, Paul, of, oh, yeah, does that guy really have gills on his neck? And let's just say you've got a character who's gone to Innsmouth and they're beginning to see some of the things that are going on beneath the surface and they're perhaps losing sanity as a result, you could use delusions as almost ways of foreshadowing some of the things that they're going to encounter later. Hmm. You could use them as ways of perhaps incorporating elements of the character's background into that so let's say that they've got a, a fraught relationship with their family, that they don't trust their brother. And they, at times, you know, look at people in Innsmouth and sort of think, oh, hang on, you know, that, that looks a bit like my brother. Maybe, maybe he's one of them as well. And I mean, that could be completely delusory, but it's then adding that element of intrigue into their family relationship that may have mm. repercussions down the line. And so I think you can really enrich the, the narrative using these elements. Yeah, and I think part of the appeal is, you know, they, they tend to be improvised. Mm. And I think, as with most of the, you know, those sanity-related side effects, they tend to be improvised. But I think just relying on random tables, and we have some of those in, in the core book, that's kind of, for me, a last resort, using mm. the random yeah. tables, because... Sometimes if you use just use a random table, it can throw up results that clash with yeah. what's going on and it doesn't fit. That can result in uncomfortable laughter or it just doesn't perhaps work. It's a, it's a sort of clash. So I think it's better to think about those side effects and you know, delusions is one of them. And how the, you know, for the player to, to think about how they role play their character as well in terms of what might come out of the situation or what might come out of the investigator's backstory. And ultimately, if you can pair those two together, then I think that's the best outcome. I can't remember the last time I used the random tables for a bout of madness or delusions or anything like that, because 
well, it's partly that clash that you mentioned, but it's even if it's not a clash, even if it's just something that is unrelated as opposed to mm. directly oppositional to the narrative, then it feels flat and uninteresting. But if you can work the general situation and the character's background and their state of mind and so on into it, that's why these days when I have characters who go into bouts of madness, I do what we were talking about earlier and just ask them questions about the overall situations or yeah. about what's really happening here. What, you know, what's so-and-so's motivation? Can you trust what's happening there? What are you going to do about this unreal situation that you find yourself in? Perhaps even describing a delusion as part of the reality that they're perceiving. I'm just trying to think of a concrete example because that doesn't explain it very well. Yeah, all right. You're in this musty old house. You've encountered this this burnt corpse. It's triggered a bout of madness because it's particularly hideous. And... You can smell smoke in here now. I mean, no one else is reacting to it, but you you can smell smoke. And you're certain there must be a fire around here, but everyone else is ignoring it. What are you going to do about that? And I think those those kinds of questions, those kinds of invitations to role play are much more effective than rolling yeah. and sort of saying, all right, yeah, you, you've now got uh, pyrophobia. It puts it back into the player's hands. It puts the agency in the player's hands and they can sort of say, oh, oh, there is smoke. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm going to open the windows. I'm going to go searching for it or whatever. Or, or, they can, or they can kick back against it and say, no, no, that's just in my head. Mm. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just imagining that because I saw this burnt figure. It's, it's, it's not real. It's not real. And, and deny it, you know? And then it turns out that the house really is on fire. Well, <laughs> you can't win. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got one that I, I've, I've kind of got in mind that I think this is going back to the same example. That Some of those ones are fixed in my mind, Matt, from when we played the game in the Arctic many years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a remote base. It's very much like the thing and, uh, you know, things have gone badly and they've, they've smashed the radio. And one of the characters comes back and I think they, they hear, you know, a voice they go into a side room and it's the, the radio room and you know all the, the radio is trashed but oh now you there is a voice faintly coming through it and you know i'll, I'll go over and pick up the radio and uh, listen i don't know it's a woman's voice uh, call in station you know whatever it was called and uh, you know they start talking to them because i looked at their character sheet their backstory sheet and and one of the things they'd got was a locket with their late wife's picture in it so the voice coming over the radio is their late wife because that was something they hadn't brought into the game yet that hadn't come into play so i kind of gave them the opportunity to bring that into play or well gave them the opportunity kind of leave it in really but i just sort of felt like that was combining stuff that had been established in the game with mm. something from their backstory yeah. uh, and that was i think for both of us it was well quite a poignant scene it was kind of quite a sad moving seen really i think as things can be and there are other instances which i don't know can be more light-hearted i guess but uh, you know you play it how you play it one thing i think you've got to be careful of though with these is you very quickly hit diminishing returns 
So mm. if you then every time the character passed by a radio after that had the wise voice come out of it, then I think the player would be rolling their eyes by the third time it happened. You don't want to go full Shutter Island. Oh, fucking Shutter Island. Mm. Yeah, I've made some notes before this episode and I was thinking about media that could be used as uh, inspiration and Shutter Island is my big counterexample. But before we get on to all that, we'll be back in just a moment. Did you know this show is edited? But I can say fuck, right? Uh, carry on. Anyway, if you want to hear the hosts mess up and waffle on even more, just chip in a dollar a show at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonalias, where all backers gain access to uncut versions of the show. There is rampant disease in the Hooverville. Someone get the dark. The Apocalypse Players present Bleak Prospect by Scott Dawood. Sense of dizziness comes over me again. Ah, my hand, my hand. Is there anyone you'd like to speak to? His hand has crumbled in yours. <gasps> Every time he moves, another part of him sheds away and crumbles. In your dream, Nancy, they didn't have any faces. Part of a season of nameless horrors from the Apocalypse Players. Here we go. Allons-y! <laughs> what a wonderful evening! I don't want to hear this song again. Well, there's blood splatter, right? Come to Paris, they said. It'll be romantic, they said. It wasn't a great idea. <laughs> I am sweating. I'm gorgeous. Flaking skin. The payment is blood. I love this guy. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And after that short moment, we're back. Part two, delusions and inspirations. When I was working on seventh edition with Mike, it was about making the effects of sanity loss more interesting and looking at what happens in films, mm. primarily films, but you know, the media too, but, and things like fight club and, and, uh, examples like that, where a lot of the story comes out of the misperceptions of the protagonist yeah because of you know well for whatever reason yeah i don't know matt do you do you enjoy that kind of thing i can think of one or two that you've recommended to me i'm pretty sure mm -hmm. uh so do you have any examples it's not i'd say something i like i mean i like it when it's done really well and when it comes completely out of left field that is case of mm. i didn't see that coming the one example i was bouncing around in my head trying to think of what's done it in more recent years that I can think of that I honestly didn't see coming until one particular moment when I noticed the trail of breadcrumbs that were finally pointing in the direction to say, actually, this isn't what's going on. And that's Joker. Because you had that, what I thought was a wonderful little montage sequence where it goes back over previous scenes in the film and shows you how they really played out, mm. that there was something missing. I thought that was brilliant. That was a kind of hats off. I did not see that being the way you're going to go. Yeah, yeah. I need to watch that again. I love that. It's great. I think one of the best examples I've seen in recent years is the TV program Mr. Robot, which 
really goes to town with that. It it is a very slow burn, but you gradually realize as the program goes on how deep a state of delusion the protagonist Elliot is in as a lot of the fundamental aspects of his reality get questioned and undermined and it has one of the best payoffs along those lines that I've seen. It's it's a remarkable bit of television. If you are doing something like that in the game, inspired by Fight Club or Joker or whatever it is where you have a character or characters who are living a completely unreal situation, I mean, even The Matrix is an example, Mm. that fundamentally is what the game has to be about. It can't really be a side plot. It can't really be just a facet of it. You are playing with this unraveling of reality. And I mean, that's fantastic. That can work really well in the game. But you have to have, for a start, I'd say a strong premise that explains why you have a group of people who are either sharing a delusion or perhaps going along with one character's delusions. Otherwise, just as a game dynamic, it's not going to work. It's something that you can do in fiction, but doing something like Joker in a game would be very, very difficult because you know it is one person's delusion. I have run a convention scenario where the entire reality of it is a shared delusion on the part of all of the player characters, and the whole thing is about just drip-feeding the little things that are saying this isn't real until you get the unravelling of that false reality at the end. That tends to work very well in play, but it is, as I said, the entire premise of the, the game. Yeah, I think when I said inspiration, I think it's about looking at those films and sort of thinking, you know, what's happening to the the characters and taking that in like small doses of that rather than as inspiration for a full scenario. I mean, you can do that, but um, mm. as you say, it's it's. Well, I think it would work well for one player. It would work very easily for one player. It has more potential for working for one player. Can be done for a group, but it's uh, a lot more complex. I think there are ways you can bring it in in Call of Cthulhu for a a group using uh, things like Carcosa or the Dreamlands or stuff like that to create these unrealities. But those things aren't not real, are they? They are. They are. I mean, it depends, for example, on your your definition Mm. of Carcosa. Carcosa doesn't have to be real. I've used Carcosa in lots of different ways, including a very unreal version of Carcosa, just as a story that allows you to have degrees of delusion that are shared by people caused by the unreality of the situation they're in. And I think if the players are familiar with the King in Yellow and Carcosa, then they're probably going to buy into that quite easily um, Mm. because they're going to think it is actually real. Yes. Because it's, you know, part of the the canon. Yeah. But then again, they may never have heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't stop you playing with it. No, but it carries a weight when you mention those things. And if people aren't familiar with them, then it doesn't carry that weight. I think that's possibly a topic for another discussion, but I think you can have a lot of fun playing with people's 
preconceptions and misconceptions because as we talked about in our King and Yellow episodes, Carcosa as a concept has been through so many fictional iterations and redefinitions and so on that I think it's it's fair to say it doesn't really mean one thing and it could mean something very different to each player at the table. And I think you can have a lot of fun with that. Certainly in terms of delusions and unreality. Hmm. Are there any other things apart from bats of madness and sand loss that would trigger delusions or delusion-like effects in Court of Cthulhu? Are there any other things that you've used that create that tenuous or undermined or conflicted sense of reality that you get from delusions? I mean, the obvious thing in just in the real world is drugs. Hmm. So drugs can cause hallucinations and delusional states of mind. We can't stop here. This is bat country. <laughs> It's a trope that's been used in, in lots of situations and it's usually either the person is suffering some sort of mental illness or they're on drugs or whatever. Either one of those can, can bring about that state of mind. In the fiction, I think in Call of Cthulhu, as you said, Scott, it can be location-based. That's not true in the real world, but in fiction it can be you know places that touch upon the dreamlands or the... Carcosa or whatever, you know, weird places could cause hallucinations. Equally, it could be the effect of magic and monsters. Mm, yeah. um, there, there are certain spells that will have similar effects, I think, Matt. You're the go-to guy on spells. I can't think that anything deliberately alters perception like that in terms of magic. One of my scenarios does intrinsically revolve around the manipulation of perception to get the PCs to do various things, which I won't say for uh, for obvious reasons because it kind of spoils the payoff in that. But that's very much an entity that's doing that because that's a power that the thing has not a spell per se, but that's just what this thing does. Hmm. So an entity twisting people's perception as a sort of a, yeah... Almost like leading them as rats through a maze to achieve an end that it can't do itself. It needs them to do it for it. Yeah. But no, I can't think of any spells off the top of my head that deliberately twist perception. Oh. I created one for a scenario I published ooh, several years ago that is tied in to a cult of Daeloth. But rather than... It creating delusions, although it can create delusory states of mind through sand loss, it is much more about changing the investigator's perception of reality to one that is more in line with the render of the veils, tearing away the veils of unreality and showing what really lies beneath. The way I handled that in the game was a classic spell. It was an opposed power roll to see if it works. And then there was basically a table of effects that was everything from engendering a, a slight sense of paranoia about people's motivations to full-on seeing reality as it really is and having your, your mind torn away from you. Mm. That makes me think... In the game, the Cthulhu mythos is the, the true reality, mm. is what we humans perceive as normal everyday life. Is that the delusion? Oh, yeah. Dun, dun, yeah. Dun. Yes. 
we think humans are important and our lives are important and all that. Clearly a delusion. I mean, yeah, it is clearly a delusion, but uh, in, in Call of Cthulhu, it's an even bigger delusion because we can't perceive reality as it is. And when we do, it breaks that sense of sanity, as we call it. So the ultimate way of dispelling delusion is putting someone in the mythos equivalent of the total perspective vortex. Exactly. It all comes back to a very hot cup of tea. <laughs> so what are some of the ways that you've seen delusions perhaps, or can imagine delusions going wrong in the game? I touched on the diminishing returns aspect earlier, and I think Matt was hinting at some of that earlier as well with um, the feeling of it being antagonistic or distracting. But are there any other ways you can think of that you might want to be careful or or things you should watch out for when bringing them into a game? The key thing that comes to mind for me is subtlety. If you're going to do it, be subtle. Don't be a sledgehammer to the face, kind of immediately obvious that this is a delusion. Like one of the, I can't remember where I read it, if it was one of the examples in the keeper handbook that struck me as being wow i'd see through this immediately if this was me in this position so you're wandering through a haunted house and all of a sudden you find a friend of yours is there well me as a player would be going well i know they aren't here because their car isn't outside we didn't make any plans to come with them here we haven't told them they're going to be here they're in boston why the hell are they here at this point and it would be me just steamrolling through it and going you're an illusion just walk on through it and it's that adds nothing to the game. If anything, it's a again, it's a distraction and it's an irrelevance. If you're going to do something, do it subtly to make them question it, not so be so blatant as to go, "Hey, I'm your friend from ten thousand miles away, and I just so happen to be here right now." Do it in such a way that it adds that element of doubt in there. Hmm. But at the same time, I think as a player you can take that as a role-playing opportunity. And I think a, a good player can very often do that well in that when something improbable happens like that, if you accept that your character is in a delusory state, you start perhaps to come up with rationales for why that could be real. You lean into it. And I think that comes down to good role-playing. I mean, it's not for everyone, but a lot of the people I play with regularly will absolutely embrace stuff like that, and it can be a lot of fun at the table. If you're just seeing a role-playing game as a bunch of problems to be solved and not really playing your characters, then yeah, I mean, that's just an irritation to be swept out of the way. But if you're looking for ways of engaging with that weirdness, then it can be quite a lot of fun. I'd say a good example of that from media in terms of both the potential problems with it and the ways it can work is the Mike Flanagan film Oculus, which is about a cursed mirror that oh, really yeah. undermines people's senses of reality completely. It's great in terms of it shows you some fantastic ideas about how delusions could be presented and how people's perceived reality can be completely wrong. At the same time, I think it also highlights one of the things that can go completely wrong with using delusions in a game. I think it sort of works in the film, but it would be absolutely terrible in the game, in that it completely disempowers all the 
characters. Nothing they perceive is really real. They have no agency anymore. And mm. and so, as a result, everything that they do in retrospect becomes unimportant because none of it was really real. Yeah, which you know, can work in a film, but we don't. that's not no. a situation I want to create in a game. Exactly. And I think yeah. going back to that example of like the the one that Matt gave of your friend appears in a house. I don't think there's any wrong approach to that from the player. The player can take the approach that Matt said and, you know, you're just an illusion. You're not here. I deny it and move on. Or or you can go with it and buy into that and explore that. I don't think either of those are, are bad or wrong. It's just a, a different mode of playing. And I think as a keeper as well, you're going to kind of hit a tone of the way you run games and some keepers uh, take a very subtle approach some are very uh you know larger than life and very i don't know pulpy or whatever you want to call it but and the way you're going to bring delusions into your game is going to be part of the way you run games i think you know it's like if you hear music from a band you probably recognize it because it's a bit like their other music or a composer you know it's they they have things that they do that makes their work recognisable. And I think as a keeper, or as a GM, mm. once you've run a few games, you probably start to develop a style and a feel. Yeah. And you're kind of settling into the way you do it. And that will run all the way through everything you do. And, uh, and it's important to emphasise that as long as the people you're playing with are having fun, then there's no wrong way of doing it. If you're ignoring... You know, a lot of what we consider to be key elements of the game or playing in a very different style and so on. If everyone at the table is having fun, that's fine. We will still silently judge you, but yeah, as long as you're having fun, it's okay. Unless you're having wrong fun, and then the fun yeah. police will come round. <laughs> I just want to go back to something we were saying earlier. I think I, I forgot to mention, like, we were talking about the random tables and how they don't, sometimes they, they don't fit. I think something that some people who are working on scenarios the miscanonic repository and so on something that some people are doing is creating customized tables yeah. for their games so you know customized tables where you can roll but the outcomes have been tailored to thematically fit with the scenario that feels like a step forward to me you know as a keeper you can do what we described and, and just work with the player to come up with something appropriate or you've got that table if you prefer using the table then you've got one that is more likely to give you a, a more pleasing and appropriate outcome well one last question then to just wrap everything up as a keeper how much do you engage with the uh, the whole table and the players out of character to make these delusions work are they entirely an in-character thing do you just present them as part of the narrative or do you ever sort of hint that they're delusions or blatantly get the other players to play into these delusions this is hypothetical for me because it's obviously like i say i don't use them but I would just layer them into the narrative. I wouldn't give them necessarily a choice because then, it, again, it diminishes the fact if the player knows that it's a delusion from the outset. And as you said, it's some players will lean into that. I generally find a lot of the players that play in the games I offer don't. So I don't offer something that I know they're not going to particularly be catered towards. So if I did do it, emphasis on the big if, 
it would be more laying it out as a statement of fact to saying this is happening rather than layering it in old oh, do you believe this do you not believe this and kind of coaching around it that that's a big red flag or not red flag this is a big flag that's been waved kind of saying hey i'm giving you the hint that this ain't real i wouldn't present it like that i would try to present it kind of deadpan no this is something that's actually happening as far as you're concerned because you should be reacting like to this like you would to anything else so why should i describe it any differently in the narrative hmm. i'll do that sometimes but sometimes just for effect well i don't know if it's for effect but sometimes i will say something to one player and describe it and then say to everybody else you don't see any of this yeah yeah exactly that doesn't necessarily say that it's not something that's real. I remember one time I had a, it was towards the end of a scenario and one of the players that got the spell, like to contact Neil Arthotep and they cast it and like nothing happened. And then I just cut like a couple of days later and I had a doorbell ring and there was the delivery guy or something like that. Yeah, just some incidental person. And that was Neil Arthotep for me. And what he said, to the one that had done the spell, he explained a bunch of stuff, you know, mythos stuff. The rest of them, what they were hearing was, you know, can you sign for this document, sir? And, you know, all of that. And then the, the person went, they weren't there long. And, uh, but that wasn't really a delusion, but it could have been, right? So it could have been. So I think sometimes it's fun to put it to the players that the rest of you don't hear this, the rest of you don't see this, you know, a tentacle comes out the guy's arm well out the guy's sleeve you the rest of you don't see that at all so is it just poses the question well is that real or isn't that real and i think that's part of the fun is it real or isn't it real because it might be a delusion but it might not be mm. this also suddenly explains to me a lot about every's business practice the company every evri <laughs> That if Neathotep was my local courier that suddenly puts mm. a whole lot of more stuff in perspective as to how they operate they are delivering a lot of mythos books to you, Matt. So, mm. As I was saying earlier, Matt and I must be playing with very different kinds of people because most of the people I play with these days, I guess we take a much more collaborative approach to these things rather than the classic almost oppositional GM player divide in that when these situations come up, it just seems organic that people embrace delusions that the other players at the table just feed into these things and that they are then used for dramatic effect. If the player knows that their character is delusional, rather than it being an immediate call for them to say, right, you know, I, I roll to see what reality really is, it then becomes an opportunity for dramatic irony. It then becomes an opportunity to set up things that they, as the player, know aren't real, but their characters are uh, perhaps walking into because it's going to create moments of, of horror or weirdness. And I just absolutely love playing like that. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the whole approach of you have a side conversation with the player and tell them one thing and tell everyone else something else. I'd much rather have all that play out between the players. I feel like listening to what you say when you start saying it, it sounds a bit like you're saying you're doing it right and Matt's doing it wrong. <laughs> I'm sure that's not what you mean. It's not what I mean, but it is the subtext, yeah. 
No, no, no. No, I mean, I think it's a serious point. I think people do it differently. And I think Matt and his players are having a great time, the same as you and your players. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And probably if those say, you, you know, you've said a couple of times, oh, Matt, you must be playing with different people. I don't think that's true. You know, I can go and watch a comedy show or I can go and watch a horrific horror film and enjoy them both. So I don't think it's true that it's necessarily different people. I think it's, it's a different mode of play and people latch into that and they can enjoy both. I guess the reason I was saying that was that Matt seemed to be quite adamant that people wouldn't enjoy what I'm presenting there. Uh, I don't know. Is that your perception, Matt? I don't know. Uh, depending on which, there are certain groups I can think of where I know it would definitely not go down well. But then again, that's maybe partly you wouldn't do it that way so it wouldn't go down well. Potentially, but I'd say there are there are certain groups I play with on a regular basis and I can think of they would not lean into that kind of thing. Oh, fair enough. Well, people are different. And some of them are just wrong. I think in conclusion, you know, delusions are something that you can add into your game. And as we've discussed, you know, I think it's been a an interesting discussion. There's a wide range of ways of handling this. And as keeper and to some degree as player as well, it's probably mostly coming from the keeper. It's up to the player how they handle it, but it can vary a lot. And it's a tool that you can use in your game, same as combat's a tool, chases are a tool, all those different things are, are tools that you can use in your game and you can use them more or you can use them less and you can use them differently and have fun with them. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well... It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to everyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Thanks very much to Dave. Also, thank you much to Don't Forget Cherry. I'm sure there's a story behind that and I'd love to know what it is. Yeah, it does end with an exclamation mark. And thank you very much to Bjorn Tor Oren. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, please do let us know and I, I can have another go. Yep, that goes for all of these names. And thanks to Tilva Sonst. And thank you much to Ron Dunnett. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named A Gloom Wrought Denizen. And thanks very much to Man of War. I presume not the band. And also thank you much to Marty Monaghan. And thank you finally to Liam Spinach. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where people write reviews of podcasts or just mentioning it the next time it comes up on social media. Get The Good Word of Jackson out there and we will do the rest. Okay, well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Or have you? I've rolled to disbelieve, Paul. I rolled to disbelieve. You can roll all you like. <laughs> it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous.
blasphemoustomes.com. Mm-hmm.